what you read in books. It's you have to learn to see. Yeah. That's something that I think really great collectors, you know, over the generations, not just contemporary art, they've learned to look. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. In this episode, we're speaking with husband and wife Jill and Peter Krauss, who have built their contemporary art collection together. Jill and Peter are active participants on the boards at a number of institutions. Jill is chairman of the board at the Public Art Fund and a board member at the New Museum and the Museum of Modern Art. Peter sits on the board of the California Institute of the Arts and Lincoln Centre, amongst others. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. Welcome Jill and Peter and thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, you are both renowned as passionate and famed art collectors. I'll go with passionate. <laughs> I'll go with maybe stupid. But <laughs> and also very adventurous art collectors. You collect outside the, the canon in many cases and make big commitments to adventurous, demanding and in many occasions lesser known artists as well. How did how did it start? Were you, Jill, were you originally the, the collector? And Well, I we we got married in 1980, and I had gone to art school, so oh. art was, you know, part of my DNA. And I was very much influenced by the Carnegie International, because I went to college at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, so mm. my first international was in 1970. We got married in 1980. Peter asked me what I wanted for my birthday, and I said I wanted an Alyshinsky print. Alyshinsky had won Actually, she the, didn't say print. She wanted an Alyshinsky. Yeah, exactly. I wanted an Alyshinsky. I said print. <laughs> well, I, I knew that our budget was small. And so um, Alyshinsky had won the Carnegie International in the previous international. So we went to the dealer and John Lefebvre, uh, John Lefebvre who was in New York, in New York yeah. who was... Uh, Madison Avenue between 77th and 76th on the second floor. Yeah, and who was Alyshinsky's dealer at the time. And uh, we went in, we bought a print for $300. Peter said to John Lefebvre, the, the owner of the gallery, so you'll call us if there's something you think that we might be interested in. And John said, no. <laughs> no, I won't call you. You'll come in once a month and you'll see what, you know, what's new. So that's how we started. We started and and to his credit, first of all, we came in once a month and he would bring us into the back room where, you know, which his uh, showing uh, right. space. And he literally make us sit at the couch, and he'd show us all the things he had in the gallery. Were you living in New York at the yeah, time? Yeah, we were living yeah. in New York. Yeah. And we couldn't afford any of them, yeah. but he would show us. And he had all these Cobra School painters uh, that were you know, fantastic uh, 
Carl Peterson, Asker Yorn, Alashinsky, Sagi. Although I'm not sure he was part of the Cobra School. We went and who was uh, the guy? It was Appel. Yeah. Uh, and there was another one. Uh, he gave. He oh, gave Cornet. 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 And yeah. uh, and Paul Berry and you know lots of great European artists. And at the time in the 80s, nobody was looking at European artists. They were looking at American artists. So we were already like a weird. So we, were you sitting there looking at these things, thinking we're getting a great education, or were you sitting there thinking we can't afford these? Or well, no, actually, what we learned was you could pay these things off on time, uh -huh. and so I was going to ask you about. So that. we were making between the two of us in 1980 fifty thousand dollars. Wow, and, that's a lot of money there. <laughs> and between the two of us, and we didn't um, feel like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it never does. He was making a lot more than I was as a designer. You know, we had six hundred dollars in expendable income a month, and so we would buy something and we would pay it off at six hundred dollars a month, and then when we paid it off, we would then buy the next thing. Buy the next thing. So the question, when I started the question, it was like, how did you start? But it almost sounds as if there was an inevitability about this because, you know, you asked for the print, you went and got the print, and it continued. Yeah. It wasn't like well, you was got a, sidetracked into well, collecting something else. No, I mean, no. Well, no. While Jill was uh, historically trained in it, yeah. I had just a personal interest. And I, I was far from trained. I had no idea. I couldn't draw a stick figure if I, you know, if I, my life depended on it. You literally have to give me one of those tracing things to be able to get the, right. you know, the legs and the arms and the head in the right place. But I was always interested just personally in art and just the reaction that I had to it. So it was a natural place for Jill and I to spend time, you know, as a couple because it was interesting. It was intellectually exciting to both of us and it was uh, investigative. You know, you could kind of do did different you, things. Did you start branching out from the fair you know not for a while not for a long time what's yeah. really interesting is that um we uh we were affected like most people are i think when they start in the art world by sort of the mystery of it and the challenge and sort of the scariness of you know how do you actually get the into this world yeah the intimidation and, and absolutely the intimidation. but john and, and his wife's name is luba john and luba were amazingly open-minded and interested in us as people, as collectors, or as potential collectors, because I couldn't call us collectors. And they engaged with us, so we felt totally comfortable. And when Jason was born, who was our first, and he was born, I guess, two years Three, after 83. that. 83. 83. Yeah. We used to take him every weekend to the gallery. So for, I'd say, almost eight years, we went exclusively to see him. Well, interesting. And okay. bought his work and things that we could afford in, in his world. And... I don't remember when John passed away, but when he did pass away, we were kind of adrift because we said like, okay, now what do we do? I mean, we don't know anybody else. <laughs> and we started looking at other galleries and we just started walking. And that, that moment was actually really interesting because that put us in a position where we literally knew something, but not much. We'd relied on one person and only one mm -hmm. person who we trusted. We didn't trust anybody else, didn't know anybody else. And we had to kind of figure it out from there. And I always tell people when they ask me about, you know, how do you, you know, collect in this bizarre, complicated, commercial world, I say to them, just, it's like anything else. you got to educate yourself. Yeah. And it's one step at a time. That's and so interesting. Do you, do you get asked that a lot? Oh, often. All very the time. often. I mean, all the time. In, in, all the know, time. You know, I'll see you at Basel or something. We're surrounded by 50,000 other people who are interested yeah. in the art world. But clearly, the rest of the time, you're in different worlds. 
and you're known as art collectors. In those other worlds, in those other contexts, are people really intrigued as to why you do this yeah. or how oh, you yeah. do this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, and, and intrigued from the point of view that they want to participate, but they don't know how to participate yeah. because it's too intimidating. And I, I think we both say unequivocally, just educate yourself, which gets to the main point, which is the, the problem I see in the world today in art, art fairs versus galleries. You can't get to know art. You can't get to understand what artists are doing or trying to communicate or attempting to create unless you have a chance to study it. You can't study it in art fair. That's not possible. It's like going to Bloomingdale's and looking for a pair of pants. Yeah. That doesn't work. You have to actually go to a gallery and see 10 works of the artist or 15 works of the artist and then see another show of the artist and get to understand what they're trying to deal with, the issues they're struggling and, with. And lots of times you see an artist and it, and it isn't until maybe the 10th time that you even that get clicks. the work. I mean, one of my favorite click moments was um, for years, Paula Cooper used to say to us, you know, you really should have Rudy Stingle. And I kept going, I don't get Rudy Stingle. Sorry, I just don't get it. And she would be like, no, no, you really, Stingle's the right thing for your collection. I don't understand why you don't get Stingle. And, you know, this went on for years. And I walked into the Whitney, into his retrospective, and I literally called Paula from the retrospective and said, okay, I've been really stupid, and I get it now. And, like, wow. Like, you know, the yeah. light bulb went yeah. on. Yeah. And we've had a number of artists like that. And generally, they're artists that we have very negative reactions to initially. Oh, that's so interesting. And because what we've found over time is that that love-hate visceral thing is very similar. Is, do you think that that's happening because you, you're initially finding them challenging? You're, out, you're outside of your comfort zone? Maybe. And you need to learn no, no, more yeah, about yeah, them? No, 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 absolutely. I don't think maybe. I think absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. I think that, I think the art, people ask me this question a lot, and my comment about this is that art is a form of communication. And, you know, it's either a language you either understand or don't understand, or it's a visual thing that you either relate to or you don't relate to. Which is why, by the way, looking at art on pictures or JPEGs is crazy. You have to physically stand in front of the art. It's just not possible to have an emotional reaction with, a, you know, with, with it unless it's otherwise in front of you. And I think that the reactions fall into three categories. You love it, you hate it, or you're ambivalent. Or you're ambivalent. And it's the love-hate thing that's interesting. That's the free song for you. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the interesting. And when you hate something, and the best example we have of this was Jim Shaw. For, for years, we looked at Jim Shaw and went, ugh. Can't stand this. I mean, it's terrible. We hate it. And we were out in California, and uh, Blum, and Blum and Poe, Poe did had a big Jim Shaw big show. Jim Shaw that show. was almost like a little mini retrospective. Right. And again, it was one of those click moments. And we walked out and said, "Oh my God, I understand it." Okay, so I want to take you back a couple of steps here because that's that's fascinating. But the thing I'm really interested in that you've said, you don't believe that being in in that moment at an art fair or you know in a very fast-paced environment about decision making is the correct way to understand how to collect if i'm paraphrasing. oh no, no you're totally right is, as, is that correct as someone once said to me a, a very old friend in fact i think i've known her longer than i've known anybody she said to me you know you can fall in love with something but that may not be long lasting yeah and you really have to spend enough time with it 
to actually see if it's having a, a lasting reaction to you. Oftentimes we th see things and we like it. We like it, we might even buy it, but we'd say, well, let, you know, let's just see if tomorrow we wake up. But you are going to art fairs, and I see do. you doing your homework. Yeah, we, and you're, we, we do. You're go, checking we, through the. We do know. go to art fairs, but we don't go to 20 art fairs. Yeah. I mean, we're not traveling. I mean, we go to Basel, we yeah. go to Miami, we go to the art fairs in New York, we go to Freeze in London intermittently. And that's pretty much it. But we're in a moment where one of the things that, you know, gallery owners are talking about is that people aren't going to look anymore. Mm. They aren't visiting the galleries mm. anymore. Right. And you've just said I, that I think you've that got is to go and look I and think you've got is, to educate I think there's a hugely and big problem. There's, there's a big discourse about the way that the internet has affected as all. But I don't, I don't think it's just the internet. I think it's, you know, the advent of the art advisor as well. You don't have to work hard yourself. You have somebody else who's working for you. And so, I mean, we still go to galleries. You know, we still, you know, try at least once a month to be out and, you know, looking more than once a month. But it's, I think, a lot of people don't want to spend the time to yeah. do it. Well, what, so, what is, you know, you have to go back to, I think, I, I say you have to, this is my opinion, but I believe you have to go back to first principles, which is if you're attempting to collect something that is going to be important for you, whether it's important for the world or not, it's a completely different picture, but if it's going to be important to you, then it has to have a lasting impact on you. Sure. And that means you have to suspend into a different place, meaning a, a, a place that's actually not relevant, what other people think, what it costs, what it goes up in value or down in value. Those things are irrelevant. The fact is, does it have an emotional impact on you? And if it has an emotional impact on you, then you need to take notice of it. Doesn't you, mean you should buy it or not, but now it's something. Sure. That's, now it's something that's important. There's a little painting that we bought from John Lefebvre in 1981 um, by an art, a Spanish artist named Juan Martinez, who represented Spain in the Venice Biennale that year. Nobody's ever heard of him since then. It's never come off of our walls. Every curator that walks into our house in the country, because it's in our guest house, walks in and goes. Who's that? I love that's, these stories. That's really interesting. We have a very quirky collection. And I still I still love looking at that painting. Yeah. Right. We have a very quirky collection. We don't have we're not a trophy collection. I mean, do we have some trophies in the collection? Yes. But not because we bought them when they became trophies. Most of them we bought before they were trophies. We don't buy that way. We've never sold anything. Well, one of the things I like very much about the conversations that we've had is that you know I've spoken to you more about it Jill than Peter perhaps but there is I've, I was sort of struck by this sense of fierce commitment and independence to work which might not be fashionable might not be easily collectible I mean we it was you know maybe about 15 years ago there was an article in some German magazine that somebody sent me and we were like the number two collectors in the world of German art. Now, like we didn't think of ourselves as German, you know, collectors sure. of German art, but we had a lot of German art. We have a lot of Eastern European artists. Um, you know, when MoMA did the show on Eastern European art, everything came from their collection except four pieces in the show. Three of them were for us. We're willing to try to look at things that relate to 
things that we own in sort of intellectual ways, but not necessarily by artists that people find, you know, uh, you know, would know household. But if you ask the question, why does that happen? Why does that occur? I think there's a few things we've said to sort of bring it together. One is we do it ourselves. Two is we've built a history between ourselves of being intellectually curious and investigating artists over long periods of time. And we don't have any time constraints. We're not trying to get something done by X date. Three is because we spend a lot of time looking at art, it does give us the opportunity or the ability to sort of go outside the box because we kind of know where the box is. And, you know, we can say, okay, well, I've seen that 16 times. You know, that looks like this. That's a derivative of that. You know, but this well, is something that, different. That's clearly related to education. I mean, yeah. you, that, you've educated yeah. yourself to but the point where... Self-education. You, you know. Yes, that's correct. And therefore, it's a bit like people talking about Picasso drawings. He had to learn how to be a classicist before he could break yeah. being a classicist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the same, so. the same issue. I'm not the word Picasso, but the, <laughs> the same issue. No, but, yeah. the no, same it's, issue. About, it's about education. But, but as I said, I think any collector who wants to be a collector needs to take on the responsibility of self-education. And, and as Jill said, you know, often people today don't want to spend that time. They don't want to, they, everybody has the same amount of time. So you do, know, you people think, say that, do you think there is a crisis about attention spans and yes, time? Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. absolutely. Because, I, and because, I think that's more the issue than anything else. Is that's people the technology don't issue. want that's to the, spend the time there's doing. A, there's a lot of talk about people not going to galleries. There's a lot of talk about people pushing back against art fairs. And I'm not in that camp. I am very, very much in the camp where I'm concerned about our attention spans and technology. And I just read an article which I thought was fascinating on, on the internet about the use of Instagram. And at the end of the article, it talks about how one of the Instagram founders who's you know been very much on the cutting edge of the technology, he and his wife have become collectors. Yes, yeah, no, we know them well. And at the so. end of it, he says, but when I go to buy something, I have to stand in front of it. I have to look yeah. at it. I can't see it as an image. I've actually got to be there with the I, 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 Yeah, We've talked, I, to, I, we've I, talked to him about I this. We agree. Was, yeah. I thought that yeah. was wonderful. We, we agree. Yeah. And he's more he has more credentials or more credibility in saying that than we do because of where he's come from. But but I agree with him. I I think that people have everybody has the same amount of time. We all have twenty four hours in a day. And the question is how do you how choose do you choose what you, you want to spend, spend your time doing? Yeah. And I, I think that it's all it's all a function of that prioritization, and one other thing, which is being honest with yourself. So if you say, I really want to be a collector, but the way I'm going to do it is hire a consultant to help me do that, that's fine. I mean, I'm not against that, but you're not going to have your collection. You're going to have the collection that the, that the advisor helped you build because they looked at it through their eyes and they're trying to interpret what you've told them might actually be interesting to you, and you're seeding a lot of the driving to that consultant. That's fine, but it's it's a combination. It's not your collection. Well, you're also using it as a shortcut through the education process. Totally. Which you're relying upon them But you to... cannot, this is not a shortcuttable thing. Oh, no, I, I This totally. is not a no, shortcuttable thing. you have to thing. learn, it's not what you read in books. It's, you have to learn to see. Yeah. That's something that I think really great collectors you know, over the generations, not just contemporary art. They've learned to look. They've learned to see an object and understand the difference between a good object and a bad object, the difference between intellectual pursuit and just ha-ha. 
Pete, Peter said earlier, you know, which is something I say a lot. You said earlier it's a language, and you've got, and and like any language, mm -hmm. you've got to, you've got to you learn, learn to speak yeah. the language. You you've got to understand it, the yeah. roots of the language. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you know we do is we do this together. We never buy anything that the other one doesn't like. I was actually going to ask you. I mean, do you have veto powers, or mm -hmm. do you just yeah. agree that yeah. you won't buy anything if one of you doesn't like it? Well, both. Yeah, both. I mean. At the end of the day, it goes back to the you fall in love with the thing. It's really hard for two different people to fall in love with the same thing. Are you both equal partners in this? I yeah. mean, you were educated no, no, in no. this. No, no, no. We Peter's are very much. It. No, we he, we are he, very much equal partners. Peter actually said in an article I read that um, he got interested in collecting as a way to spend more time with his wife, which I thought was a wonderful <laughs> comment. Well, it's true. So clearly, you were educated in this. So yeah. you come to it with knowledge and passion, and you're. But are you now equal partners? In oh this? yeah. Absolutely. I think we were always equal partners. I, yeah. I think the I think Jill had, as she said, an educational background and an intellectual foundation. I just had the sort of free radical of I enjoyed art, even as a person growing up as an adolescent and then ultimately as a you know as a young adult. You know, I found myself in museums. I'm not even sure I knew why I was in museums, but I would go to museums. And ultimately, it was because I actually enjoyed well, looking at the art. You, but you grew up in one of the great museum cities of the world, Philadelphia. Right? We did. We both we did. did. We both Although grew up. Although I would add that Jill spent her time taking advantage of that. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> well, you know, one of the, the stories that, uh, the great stories about growing up in Philadelphia and going to museums was, you know, when you're in high school, and this was the, you know, the 60s when we were both in high school. and. We used to, as a high school student, cut classes periodically. And, you know, most of the kids in my high school would cut classes to go hang out at the train station or the pharmacy or the shopping mall. I used to cut classes and go to the art museum. I had a group of friends and we used to go. You to were way out of the curve. We, we used to go. You were behind the curve. We, <laughs> probably were behind the curve. We were, we, were, we, the curve. we were going and cutting classes and going to the Philadelphia Art Museum. But this was the 60s and the Philadelphia Art Museum was bankrupt, had no money. And they had a great director. It, well, in the 60s, it had a great... Oh, no, maybe that's before Anne Darling. Oh, yeah, way before yeah. Anne. And because I told this story to Anne, and she thought it was incredible. So in the 60s, they didn't have enough money to keep the whole museum open every day of the week. The Philadelphia Art Museum is sort of like a horseshoe shape, and the stairwell is the center, and then the two sides are the, the museum. And he... Um, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the right side was open, and on wow. Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, the left side was open. So if we went to the museum and the contemporary side or the 20th century side wasn't open, they also didn't have enough money for guards. So they would put just a stanchion rope. So and be careful about which days to bunk off. On right. <laughs> so we'd sneak under the stanchion rope and spend the day in, with the Duchamps. And you know that was my that Ma was my education. Marcel would have approved. Right, it, exactly. <laughs> it, we, you know, it was. Um, that's how I cut school. My friends and I. You know, we were obviously the artsy kids in the school, but that to me was being rebellious. Right. Was you know going and jumping well, the rope. It was a good good use of your rebellious right, time. Right. Exactly. So you very much collect together. You we have do. to agree. We do. You kind of both have a veto. We do. Have there been, are there notable works where 
you know, you really regret that you oh, yeah. didn't get something. <laughs> oh, yeah. and that so. comes up oh, in yeah. conversation. <laughs> oh, it definitely comes up in conversation. <laughs> but in the end, it's no sort of... Guilt, it, of it, it, no guilt, No, no, sometimes it works out. So um, I had put Christian Markley's, oh, what was it called? Uh, uh, video quartet, video quartet yeah. on hold. And Peter came to look at it and he was like, are you crazy? Like, what are we gonna do with this? It's a four screen video. Like, are you nuts? We don't have any place to show it. Like, this is the stupidest thing you, and we didn't buy it. And about a year later, Peter was like, that was a big mistake. <laughs> that was a really big, that was mistake. A big mistake. So then I, I was having dinner with Christian and his wife in London, three or four years later, I guess, maybe, maybe longer. I said, so what are you working on? And so he said, well, I'm working on this thing about time and, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's a movie thing and, you know, you got to get the stills. And I'm listening to him and saying, well, how does this work? He goes, well, you know, I find a minute in every, in any film in the world and that minute is documented in a film and then it's a, a real clock. It's like 24 hours. And I said, that's amazing. I said, I'm buying it. <laughs> so that's how, got, that's and, how we and, got and you did and you yeah, donated and you donated it to mama, right? so, it's a promise gift to okay mama. so he did make up yeah, no no no, right, no, no. <laughs> but but so and you know in the end sometimes it it works out it doesn't always work out so early on you said you you you've never sold anything right um are there things in the collection and and i don't think you can characterize the collection as we've talked yeah. to that point are there things in the collection that you regret having bought Oh, of course. I, you know, of course there are things, but the things that we regret having bought aren't worth anything today. So there's nobody to sell it to. <laughs> but, but in buying them, you know, I, I, I'm always interested in this yeah. conversation. How people, many, many collectors will start buying yeah. prints and then sort of graduate. Yeah, but, and that's where but, we started. But too. in buying those things, yeah. do you still see them as having an intrinsic value in terms oh, absolutely. of the process? Oh, yes. absolutely. So, so, it's the history of our collecting. Exactly. Yeah, so we, that, that's an important point. I, by the way, I would answer that question slightly differently. I, I think there's actually very, very few things that I today don't like and I did at one point like. And I, I can only think of one that we bought from a Cal Arts auction that diorama piece i can't remember what it is okay. yeah yeah okay we're, we're not going to name it. any names right I no no i can't remember the name but, Could yeah. but whatever career. yeah exactly. but i can't remember but but i that piece i probably don't like anymore but the rest of them i actually still like because at the end of the day i bought them because i like them yeah. yeah and you know yes my taste has evolved and it's gotten more sophisticated or less sophisticated and so i can you know from that point of view i can say well maybe they're not as impactful as they once were but i don't wouldn't say I dislike them. The thing that we're trying to build, or that I guess we see about, think about it this way, or at least I think about it this way, is the collection, again, go back to the first principles. First principles are, does it have an emotional effect on you? If it has an emotional effect on you, the reason why it's having an emotional effect on you is because it's speaking to some part of your ethos, some part of your intellectual background, some part of your experience, some part of your fears, some part of your aspirations something it's sure. speaking to something and your fears and aspirations and you know your uh, existence in, uh, in in time is also impacted by what's happening around you and so you know we are a microcosm we all are a microcosm of the time that we live in the world and we react to whatever's happening in the world well artists are doing the same thing and so essentially it's a time capsule for how Jill and I viewed the world that we lived in 
Now, you know, at some point, that could be completely irrelevant to the world. At some point, that might be interesting sure. to the world. But, but, but that's what it is. But sometimes things come full circle. I mean, we, we had an interesting moment recently. So as we said, we started off buying Alashinsky. That was our first purchase. And we bought an Alashinsky print. About a year later, um, we bought uh, a work on paper by him, an ink drawing. Uh, and it was- This falls in the category of another mistake. And, well, yes, a, an ink drawing on a map of Outer Mongolia. And um, about a year later, uh, the John Lefebvre said to us, well, you know, Pierre is starting to mount these works on paper on canvas and paint borders around them. Do you want him to, you know, take the map and do that? And we said, well, how much? And he said, $10,000. The original drawing was $6,800. For us, it took over a year to pay off that, yeah. you know, the original drawing. So $10,000 was like, that was a lot of money for us. And um, so we, uh, and Peter said, well, what happens if we don't like it? And John said, well, you're, you own it. You know, it's what Pierre decides he wants to do. And we said no. And that was always a huge mistake. We felt that was like we were really not, that was, we should have spent the money to right. do that. Um, and in Basel this year, we bought a 1982 Alashinsky painting that had been in Pierre's collect, personal collection. And that was like, that was very- It was a mounted piece with the yeah, water. Yeah, it, it was basically the, the year that we would have asked him yeah, to paint exactly. the border. And that was like really exciting for us. Yeah. I, it was the most excited I've been about purchasing an artwork off a wall in, in a long time because so, uh, it felt like we had like done a full circle in, in, our, in our art. So buying. I was very cleverly going to come to the end of this by asking you, because I've written it down yeah. and I remember to go back, right. um, whether you still own the Alashinsky print that you originally purchased. Yes. I'm guessing the answer is yes. Yes, right. sure. Yeah, it is. Sure. Yeah. So let me ask you, one of the reasons that we're doing Collect Wisely is because I think that this notion of a moment in time and collecting is, is such an interesting topic and we get asked about it so much. And it becomes like a document of the moment in a certain way. And, and I particularly, you know, I could have talked to curators, I could have talked to museum directors, I could have talked to professionals. The people I really wanted to talk to were the people who were collecting, who are the patrons of the artist at the, on, the, on the leading edge of, of supporting artists. Doesn't have to go through a committee process, doesn't have to go. You're there making decisions. And in a way, forming our taste, forming our culture on, a, on, a, on the leading edge of forming culture at that moment. And so, I, you know, I'm very interested, and a lot of people who are responding to this are very interested in, as the moment is changing, as, you know, the model is changing, it's not the 80s, the 90s anymore. It's not Leo Castelli's moment anymore. It's a very different environment. Has collecting changed significantly, do you think? Well, I, look, I think, I'd say a few things that I think are interesting around this. First of all, a very, uh, very well-known, very well-respected museum uh, director said to me about, I don't know, 15 years ago, we were talking about another very famous collection by a, uh, a husband and a wife. Uh, he said, well, you know, the issue is, is that you are captive to the time in which you're collecting. 
and he said and it could be that this time is a great period and it could be this time is basically a washout which was incredibly depressing but accurate we don't actually know yeah how this is going to be viewed number one number two is i think what we have done in our collecting which may also be a complete washout is to kind of uh, move away from buying off the walls or in the galleries and to try to push the limits on both technology and on commissions so as you know we commission artists to do work and we generally commission artists to do work that they've never done before in a place that they've never done it in an attempt to kind of push the boundaries. It also gives us the opportunity to have really in-depth discussions with artists and have a real intellectual commitment to someone's work. We've commissioned now 18, we've completed 18 commissions at our house in the country. And we Are have they indoor or outdoor. They're both. They're both. They're both. Um, but they're mostly outdoor. outdoor. Okay. Uh, two are indoor, and the rest are outdoor. Um, two are video in outdoor video installations. So that's you know that pushes the you know the commitment way like yeah. way into the future. Yeah. Like you know, for you know for the rest of our lives, we have to be committed to this work. You know, the criteria with the artists is that they have to come and visit you know they have to spend time on our property um, and they have to come in multiple seasons so that they see the property with leaves on the trees and with leaves off the trees because it feels very different sure. it's 400 acres fields it's woods then they pick a spot you know we don't say here's your spot we make a commitment to do a project with them and sometimes their first ideas we don't think will work or we don't think you know so we have a lot of dialogue on why we like the artists why we you know with them you know like what we respond to in their work and we don't give them a time limit. Do you very proactively work with them through that process yeah. and yeah. Put, push and, back and, and say, yeah. Yeah. this and isn't going to work or we don't like we this? We have changed like artists' it. approach. Yeah. And they, I think to a person, they have said at the end that they were able to do something they hadn't thought of originally. Right. And it has impacted their work going forward. Right. That hasn't been true for every artist, but yeah. it's been true for many. Have you yeah. gone through that process and not ended up commissioning work? We've had a couple where yeah. we couple. didn't. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I would yeah. imagine. But not that's because we, normal. mostly because the artists just never got there. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to we yeah. said no. Yeah. I mean, we had one we said no to, but because we didn't think it would physically work. Actually, we had two that we said wouldn't physically right. work. But other than that, you know, it's not because the end we just didn't like. The artist or working with them or anything like but that. But again, to your question, I think we're what we're trying to do is to be, I don't want to say more relevant, but to be more, I mean, to think about a patron of the arts, to think about somebody who's really supporting art. It's not just giving an artist enough financial support so they can produce something that you like. It's also pushing an artist to do something that they hadn't considered doing. Because again, and if the artist is capable of capturing something in the world that's affecting them today in some new and different and unique way, that's actually a contribution. 
Yeah. And many, many of the artists, you know, have never worked that we work with have never worked outside. You know, when we first started this project, people would say to us, well, you need to talk to this person and that person, which were the, you know, the standard, sure. if you're doing, outdoor you know, an outdoor sculpture, these are, and we were like, no, we don't think so. Um, you know, we'd rather talk to people um, who we sort of intellectually think their work is interesting and is the next generation. Well, I think what, what's wonderful about that is that, it, as, as Peter was saying, it's, it's not patronage is not just perceived as writing a check yeah it's actually many times it's about giving somebody an opportunity yeah and allowing them to kind of grow into that conversation i think you've addressed this a little bit but i really want to drill down on it just for a few seconds and ask you to be quite specific about it um if you were you know with with your experience now you've been collecting for a number of decades um but i i still when I think about you, I think about you as very adventurous collectors and very vital collectors. Um, if you were talking to younger versions of yourself um, who are going to come and say, "My, how did you start and what would, what would your advice be to them at this point, at this moment, second, you know, second decade of the 21st century? First, I, think, I think the advice is simple uh, uh, and yet complex. So you have to convince yourself that although the world is complex and that you see many people who have amassed large collections that seem extremely important, that that's not relevant. What's relevant is your ability to interpret what you see in front of you and to be deeply committed to understanding how you re relate to that and then ultimately collecting those things. And the collections, we've been collecting for 38 years. There are many people that have collected for 50 years. Sure. It takes a long time. And it's never going to happen overnight. And if it happens overnight, it's almost guaranteed not to be that interesting. So if you can suspend the uh, intimidation and or envy or all the above <laughs> and just commit yourself to taking one step at a time. Do you feel you're just getting going? I, you know, I think we're just continuing. Yeah. You know, I, 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 yeah, I wouldn't say with that. I, I would, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think we'll probably do this till we can't. <laughs> yeah, because in my head, I'm always 18 years old and I'm just getting started. Yeah. Well, I do think this. One thing I fear the most is as you get older, I think there's a tendency to believe that your experience has taught you things. Yeah. And there's truth to that, but there's also a bias to that. And it's the bias that I worry about. Yeah, you've how got to do stay I, open. Yeah, how do you stay open? Yeah. And as your mind gets older, you get older, even though as older people we think of ourselves as 25 years old, we're yeah, not. exactly. And the reality is we're not. And the reality is we have this long history of experience that's taught us a bunch of things. And as I say, that's a plus but a minus. So how do you challenge yourself? So going back to looking at something that, you know you don't like, okay, but what really, why don't you like it? You know, is it your bias? Is it because it has a really negative effect on you? Okay, well, if it's just a negative effect, then you really gotta look hard. If it's your bias, well then how do you break through the bias? And that scares me the most in collecting, quite frankly, because I think that we have, we have a much higher probability in a time period when we actually have the capacity to, and to actually collect, we have a much higher probability of not being able to collect the yeah. things that are actually it's like changing. A, do you think that when people say, well, that's my taste, do you think that taste is a limit or an advantage? I don't know what taste means. 
Well, people would say, oh, yeah, that's my taste. I'm attracted to, you know, that's natural. I'd be attracted so to So I would say to them, taste is not relevant here. What, what's relevant here, again, it's art has to impact you. And it has to have an emotional response. So it's not a question of taste. It's a question of, go back to your, your uh, analogy of language. Can you understand the language? And if you understand the language, then that's, that's relevant. That's interesting. So that artist is able to reach you. And if they're reaching you, then you got to take notice. You got to read it. And the, you know, so it's not a question of taste to me. So when people say, well, someone's got a good eye, maybe they have a good eye, or maybe they've taught themselves to actually understand when they're being impacted by something, as opposed to they have a good eye. And when someone's being impacted some, by something, since we're all human, the probability is, is that most humans will be impacted by the same thing. And that's ultimately why I think some artwork is actually iconic and some artwork is not iconic. Sure. So I, I don't, I don't, I reject the taste, the whole concept of taste. I don't think that, that makes any sense. And, and if you try to draw sort of a, uh, a line to the whole argument we're having here, it goes back to the individual collector trying to unmask their own feelings and sensitivities at how they react to something that they're looking at. You know, I worry that people now look at art as an asset class versus as, you know, from a collector's point of view and that people are trading art and that, you know, it's, I mean, I understand buying and selling art if the only way you can afford the next thing is to sell something else. And so I get that, but I think there's a lot of people today who are using it as a way to make investments. And I always try to discourage people from doing that because I say to them, you think this is gonna go up in value, but I, you know, I lived through the 80s when we watched all these artists become art stars and today you can't give their work away. Um, so just because you've got this five years where these artists are going to be art yeah. stars does not mean that 20 years from now, anybody's, you know, they're investments. These are not investment vehicles sure. and never should be. You should want to live yeah, they with... Yeah, should be about passion. Yeah, exactly. You should... For contemporary art. Look, if you're going to buy a Picasso, okay, it's Picasso. Yeah, it's I mean, different. That, that's, yeah. that's different. So just to pick up on the taste, to go back for a minute, because I do think it's an interesting issue, because I think I, I threw that out there as a sort of contentious bracketing. Um, on the other side of the coin, to to Joel's point, um, if if I asked you, how would you define connoisseurship? What does that mean for you in terms of your thinking about how you collect? What does connoisseurship mean to you? I, I, I mean, I... I think simply it means a deep commitment to investigating your intellectual curiosity in the world of art, broadly speaking. We've done it in contemporary art, but there's lots of places to do it, sure. places to do it. And it's not just obviously visual arts, it could be performance art, it could be theater, it could be, you know, any artistic pursuit. But, Tiffany Glass. But you know, Tiffany Glass, but uh, photography, whatever. But you know, for us it's this yeah. it's this, you know, sort of rather thin um, world of contemporary art because there's lots and lots more art than just that. But I think it's that commitment, I think, because it doesn't, connoisseurship can connotate a concept of you being right 
you know, you're a connoisseur, a connoisseur is someone who's thought of as not only can they see, but they do the right thing. I'm not sure there's a right here. I think the connoisseurship to me is the commitment uh, to actually explore your own emotions and how your emotions interact with what you see. Oh. That's the exciting part. So That's the human part, because this is a human activity. One of the big problems, I've done this with two people once before, and I left the interview feeling very short-changed. <laughs> and I could have kept going all day because when you're talking to two people, you've got two opinions yeah. coming at you and 35 minutes does not do that justice. Um, so, you know, I could keep going for another two hours. You guys would probably be under the table yawning by that point. <laughs> we're, we're good about talking but, about but, things, but, so we're but, fine. But this has been great. But I want to ask you one final question. Um, and I'm not sure I'm going to give you both uh, a choice here. I think it, because you've talked about collecting together, I, you know, you're not going to get time to confer, but I think you have to make one choice, if I may suggest. And my last question to you is that if you were going to be put into a white room for the rest of your life and you had to pick one artwork, it could be from anywhere in the world, from any period in the world. You don't have to own it. It could be from any museum in the world. If there was one thing and you knew that you were going to spend, that that was going to have to sustain you and feed you for the rest of time, what, what would you choose? I don't think we can answer that. We've been asked it a hundred times, and we generally say, you know, it's like asking it's you like which, asking who's which your favorite, favorite child. child. No, it's different. You, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta answer it. There's gotta be something. But I Come think on. every, every, everything. At the end of the day, I, I really think that each of the works that we own, or we think this way, but, but this, you don't this, have to own yes, this. That's, that's, that's why it's oh, different. Okay, I will it's tell you. It's not your favorite people, child because people, you don't have to own this. This could be any. You, people, could, you could choose the Last Supper. Okay. I see. Pick anything okay. you want. People ask me if I could pick one work to live with at MoMA. What would it be? So that 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 I'm even removing okay, that. Okay, no, no, no. But I'm but I'm gonna be, but I'm gonna tell you how sort of quirky we are, uh, or I am, and you know I'm not gonna pick any of the household names. The the piece that That's I would pick. I know the piece <laughs> that I would pick at Mama yeah. is the Broder's egg cabinet. Wow. Fantastic. And I and you know Ronald Water donated, and I told his wife Carol. Um, that that was my absolute favorite piece in the entire museum. She Fantastic. just she was like dumbfounded, I think. But it was but that it's I know it's a quirky piece, but oh my god, I just every time it's on display and it's not on display that often. Yeah. I'm just I thought you were gonna up. go back to Philadelphia and choose something from No, the and well the the other thing would be the and I'm I I didn't choose that because I can never remember the, the Duchamp peephole piece. Uh, Etonne Donnet. Et, Etonne Donnet. That would probably yeah, be I'm, like I'm a dumb in the Broders. Yeah. The Broders eggshell. There's not even close. So <laughs> But you know, so we did get a decision out of you, <laughs> a support vote. <laughs> a support vote. Okay. Well, listen, it has been such an incredible pleasure to have you on Collect Wisely, and thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it's always so insightful. I learn so much, and everybody who's listening learns so much, and it's so generous of people to do this. Uh, but thank you so much for doing this. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. 
or you can email us at info at sKny.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers. Thank you.